Galatians 1. Among the first epistles written by Paul was the letter to the churches in Galatia, a province in modern-day Turkey. The opening of the letter, as we saw last Sunday, follows the pattern of the letters of that time. The name of the writer or writers, those addressed, and then a greeting. And the first part is normal enough. Paul, an apostle, sent not by men nor by man, not sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me. From this we learn that Paul is an apostle, he is commissioned by Jesus Christ and God the Father, and that Paul is not alone. He writes this with all the brothers who are with him. But when it comes to those who are addressed, something is different. It is addressed to the churches in Galatia. And by addressing this letter to a collection of churches in a province, Paul is doing something he has not done elsewhere, either before or after this. He is addressing a group of churches in one province. In his other letters, he addressed churches in cities, like the church in Rome or in Corinth. Or he addresses individuals, like Timothy and Titus. Yet here we find the churches in Galatia are addressed. In Acts 14, at least the churches in four towns are mentioned, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the hometown of Timothy, and Derbe. These were towns that were visited by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But already we should, I think, begin to have a sense that there's, there may be something different in this letter. And then there is the greeting. And as I indicated last Sunday, what we looked at, the first sentence of this letter really contains the whole epistle sort of in microcosm. And rather than review that material, uh, we will come to it as we go work our way through the letter. I would mention that after the greeting, it was normal to expect a word of thanksgiving to the gods for the health or the well-being of the person. Um, in the letters of that time, there usually was a section of thanksgiving after the greeting. And we find that Paul uses this pattern in his letter. Uh, his letters in Second Corinthians, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.3, so it's near the beginning. I thank my God every time I remember you. But Paul doesn't do it here. This is not the case in this letter to the Galatians. Instead, if you look at verse number six, we read, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. The phrase, am astonished, was in fact a common expression in that day in letters, letters of rebuke. You can find it's a whole genre of letter when someone is writing to scold someone and you find this phrase, I am astonished, and then they talk about whatever it is that the person has done. I am astonished, and then they give the reasons for the rebuke. And Paul will give several in the course of this letter. He begins with the fact that they've been disloyal to God. They are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. By the way, in this genre of letters, these letters of rebuke, they also had requests of how to make things right. This is what you've done wrong, and I'm astonished that you've done this. But then they would say, this is what you can do to make it right. We will get to this in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Okay? We're not there yet. You also notice that Paul does not say that they have deserted the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather they are deserting they are starting to turn around and turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul writes this letter to stop them before they have gone too far, 
before one would say they have in fact deserted. They're in the process of turning. Note also that he says that they have so quickly, they're so quickly deserting. And here we should hear echoes from the life of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, this is when Moses, he's recounting what happened when he was on Mount Sinai. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. And then a few verses later, Moses describes when he gets down there. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way the Lord had commanded you. And in the book of Judges, we find this time and time again in chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges or leaders who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. I remember some years ago when I preached through the book of Judges, uh, I was talking about the pattern of Israel. Uh, God would deliver them, and then for about 40 years they'd be okay, and then they would fall into idolatry and worship false gods. God would bring in someone to oppress them. They would call out to God. God would deliver them, and they'd be okay for 40 years. And you see this, this cycle of 40 years. And in a conversation after one of the sermons, someone mentioned to me that 40 years wasn't too bad, that he had trouble with 40 minutes. You know, 40 minutes after the sermon, he found himself not doing what he should be doing. As we sang in the hymn today, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I think it's part of the human condition. Even after God has begun his work in us, we so quickly turn from the proper way. One could make the case that what Paul is saying here is not that as soon as Paul and Barnabas left town, they turned. But rather, Paul and Barnabas left, and these people in Galatia, they continued in the faith. But then some false teachers came in, and very quickly they went over to the side of these false teachers. That there was no long struggle where these false teachers had to persuade them. Oh, you need to come over. Paul's right, but you need to add something to it. No, there was no long struggle. They so quickly were deserting what they had been told. Lest we think badly of the Galatians, I would suggest that we are not much different from them. How quickly do we turn from a God-centered view of reality to living as though God does not exist? A self-centered view of things. So let's learn from them rather than criticize them. To what were the Galatians turning in verse number, the end of verse number six and then verse seven, and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all? Um, the NIV is not helpful here at all, and in fact, we'll find this throughout the book of Galatians. Um, in Greek, Paul uses the word another, and the King James is, is much to be preferred here, that they are so soon removed from him that called you unto another gospel, which is not another. He uses the word another twice. But and here, as good as the King James is, it can't explain this. In Greek, there are at least two words for another. There is the word heteron, from which we get heterogeneous, that is 
different kind. And then there is aloe. Okay. Now, a different of a different qualitative difference is heteron. That is, it is not like a lesser form of the gospel. It is completely different. And they have gone to something that is not another. This is verse number seven. It is not another gospel that is of the same kind. I hope I'm making this clear. Paul is saying, here is the gospel, and these people have come in, and you are deserting, and you're not, you're not following here, and maybe it's a little different. You've gone completely to something that is different. It is a hetero gospel. It is a different gospel altogether. It's not something that's like the gospel. It's not in the category of gospel. In fact, at this point, I think Paul is using their language. I think if Paul had his way, he would not use the word gospel. But these false teachers have come in and said, here is the gospel. You know, what Paul told you, that's good, but you need to add something to it. This is the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. It's not the gospel at all. It's not like another kind of gospel. It is completely and it is radically different. The Galatians are turning to something that is so different that it cannot even be called gospel or good news. As we are just at the beginning of this letter, Paul does not spell out everything. We will see this as the letter unfolds. But one thing should be clear to us, and that this new teaching to which they are turning was not like the gospel, which is God-centered and required submission. Rather, they are deserting that system and they are going to something that is self-centered. Now, I had this battle in my mind as I was preparing this. You might say, well, wait a minute, Damon, you're reading into the text. There's nothing in the text that says God-centered gospel versus self-centered gospel. But consider this. The gospel is about God's good news, what he is doing to reclaim creation. That is God-centered. If you leave that, Anything short of that must be self-centered. It is either centered in God or it is centered in ourselves. It goes all the way back to the serpent and Eve, that you will be like God. So even when we turn to false gods, false ideologies, false ideas, we are still the ones who believe that we're calling the shots. So there are only two ways to live. With God at the center of things or with yourself at the center of things. Now, with yourself at the center of things, you might become materialistic. You might become an idolater, all these various things. But you are still the center of all things. So it's either God-centered or it is self-centered. And when they are deserting that which is God-centered, the gospel, then they're going to something that is no gospel at all, but is, in fact, self-centered. We really need to be careful here, as, and we'll see it more as we go through Galatians. Even sometimes when we claim and when we think that we are aiming for that which is right, in many ways we are doing it in a very self-centered way. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? We say, yes, I've become a Christian, and now I'm going to live the Christian life. And suddenly we are deserting the gospel and we're going to more of a self-centered view of things. Let's be clear. The issue is not theology. The issue is not doctrine. 
The issue is a relationship. They are deserting the one who called them by the grace of Christ. They are abandoning a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, through God the Spirit. How did this happen? How is it that so quickly they turned away? If you look in verse number 8, or verse 7, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Simply put, the Galatians are deserting the gospel because of those who are perverting the gospel. The Galatians are being thrown into confusion. The English Standard Version says, there are some who trouble you. And this immediately recalls what Jesus said to his disciples his last night before his death. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. But these false teachers had come in and in fact were troubling the people in the churches in Galatia. As to who these people are, that will come later in the letter. letter. And on some level, and I say this very carefully, it doesn't really matter. On some level, it doesn't matter at all who these people are. Because look, if you would, at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So it doesn't matter who it is that's doing this. If they are preaching something other than what Paul preached, then they should be eternally condemned. And I think Paul's point is clear enough. If someone presents a gospel other than that which is centered in Jesus Christ, there will be eternal consequences. By the way, verse number 9 is not merely a repetition of verse number 8. The English Standard Version says, as we have said before, uh, and, and notice, we, we have said this. I believe that Paul is reminding them, remember when Barnabas and I were there and we preached the gospel to you and you accepted the gospel and we told you then that if someone seeks to pervert this gospel, they will be eternally condemned. This is a warning that Paul gave them back at the beginning. There is no other gospel. There is only one gospel. Well, in a pluralistic society, this is a radical notion. That there's only one way of salvation. That there's only one God. There's only one right way. So I think we get what Paul is saying. One gospel. But what about the business even an angel from heaven. Later in this letter, in chapter 3, verse number 19, we will read, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. What this means will be fleshed out there, but let me tell you, when Stephen was before the Sanhedrin, before he was stoned to death, the first martyr of the church, he said, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels. And in Hebrews chapter 2, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? What is this all about, about angels? If we were in 1 Corinthians, I think we would know what was going on. But what is being said here? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, this is Moses' last words as he pronounces a blessing on Israel. 
This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south from his mountain slopes. What Moses is telling the people of Israel is this. When the law was given on Sinai, and I don't know if you ever try to picture it in your mind, we normally assume that Moses went up by himself and God came down by himself and the two of them met and that's when the law was given. That's not the picture that Moses gives us. That when God came to give his law, his glorious law, he came with tens of thousands, that's what myriad means, tens of thousands of angels. And within the Jewish tradition, they began to sort of focus on this. It's interesting, the Sadducees did not believe in angels, but the Pharisees did. And I think they so focused on the angels to the point that in Colossians, Paul says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Well, any self-respecting Jew would never worship anything other than God. I think Paul's being highly ironic by saying, listen, you guys talk about angels all the time. Remember when Moses was there and all the angels and the law was given through the angels? That they have reached the point that they're actually worshiping angels. Paul is saying, I don't care if an angel comes down and preaches another gospel. Or I don't care if somebody comes into your town and says, listen, an angel said to me, you know, what Paul preached, that's okay, but we need to tack something onto it. He says, I don't care. If they preach something other than that which is centered in Jesus Christ, then let that person or that being be eternally condemned. Paul wants to make it clear he doesn't care where the message comes from. There's only one true gospel. Now, following this double condemnation in verses 8 and 9, verse number 10 may sound rather strange. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, you know, after verses 8 and 9, we would say, well, yeah, Paul, we know, we get it. You don't care what people think about you. You're not trying to please people. You say, if somebody preaches another gospel, they should go to hell. They should be eternally condemned. But I think, remember, this is a dialogue. Paul is responding to the situation there. I believe that those against whom he is writing had said to the Galatians, who are Gentiles, you know, Paul preached a very easy gospel for you because he wanted you to like him. You see, in that day, if you wanted, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be a Jew, you had to go through a rigorous program. And you had to be circumcised, you had to keep the law, you had to be baptized. And Paul comes in and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And people are like, well, yeah, Paul wants to be popular. He wants to have a lot of converts. So he makes it very easy for people to become followers of Jesus. Paul wants to make it clear. He is a servant of Jesus Christ. He is not trying to win a popularity contest. He is not trying to please men. In what follows, beginning at verse number 11, and going through the end of chapter 2, 
Paul, in essence, tells his story. It is his autobiography. It's selective, obviously. He doesn't tell everything. But those things that will then lead to chapter 3 in which he makes his case. It might seem strange that Paul does this because he has just rebuked them. And you know, when you rebuke someone and say, I am so astonished that you have done this, it seems like it's appropriate to say, and this is what you need to do. You need to change what you're doing. I, I'm shocked. I'm amazed. I'm stunned that you are deserting the gospel. Get back on board. Get back to the gospel the way that I taught it to you. Paul will do that in chapter 5 when he says stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery but before he gets to the this is what you need to do to correct the situation Paul needs to address other matters beginning with his story you see Paul does not simply say this is what is right this is the way to live your life as a faithful Christian He himself has lived this way. And Paul does not call for his readers to do something he himself has not done. He has put his faith in Christ. His view of reality is God-centered, not self-centered. That's how he has lived his life. And now when he says to the Galatians, you need to come back to the gospel, he's not saying, don't do as I do says, you know, do something other than what... He's like, no, this is how I live my life and this is how you should live your life. The key to understanding Paul's story is looking at his encounter with Jesus Christ. In the first sentence of this letter, we saw last week, that he affirmed that his apostleship was not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now he affirms that the gospel is not something that man made up. I told you last Sunday that if one challenges the authority of the messenger, then you can challenge the authenticity of the message and therefore the authority of the message. Paul has told his readers his apostleship, his authority is not from man. Now he tells them his message is also not from man as well. Look, if you would, at verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. We find verse 1 and verse 12 a similarity in pattern. Not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. Did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Received it by revelation, Jesus Christ. Before I go on, some, if, if you know your New Testament, you might say, well, what about 1 Corinthians 15? For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the assumption is that many people have when they read that is, Paul learned all this information from human beings, from man. That seems to contradict what he just said to the Galatians, that he did not receive it from men. If Paul is saying that he did in fact receive the message from other human beings, I think he's simply confirming the unity of the Christian faith, that what he believes is the same as what the apostles believe. 
But today, when we had communion, I started a bit early, a few words earlier than I normally do, where Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. I would suggest to you and I would argue that what Paul knows about the gospel, he received by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. No, no, no doubt. Paul had heard the message from Christians. That's why he was persecuting them. He didn't like what they had to say. He had heard it before. But the truth of it and the reality of it, that this was true, was brought home by the revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, having stated that his authority and his message did not have human origins, Paul now tells the Galatians his story, one I think that they've probably heard before. We can't look at the whole story today. We will look at verses 13 through 17, in which Paul gives the Galatians three pictures of himself, three snapshots, if you wish. Paul before his conversion, Paul's conversion, and then Paul after God called him. Let's read verses 13 through 17. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. The best evidence that Paul has for his claim that he received his gospel by revelation from Jesus Christ is his conversion. The dramatic change that occurred in his life demands some explanation. How could someone who was such a fanatical opponent of the followers of Jesus become such a devoted preacher of the gospel of Jesus? Here begins his story. Paul before his conversion. You'll notice that as Paul talks about his pre-conversion period, the snapshot, it's all about him. There are four first-person verbs here. I persecuted the church of God. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. His way of life was all about him. This will stand, by the way, in stark contrast to his conversion in which God set me apart from birth. God called me by his grace. God was pleased. I don't know if you were listening as Zib read to us today from Luke 18, but the two men who went up to the temple to pray. And what did the Pharisees say? I thank you that I am not like this. I do this. I do this. And what did the tax collector say? God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Pre-conversion, it's all about me. It's a self-centered way of thinking. In conversion, it's all about God. First, he talks about his pre-conversion days. And there are two things he wants us to know. His persecution of the church and his devotion or his zeal for Judaism. And the two are not unconnected. Judaism is used to describe his way of life before his conversion. In Jewish literature of this period, it refers to not only a belief system, but a way of life. This is how Paul lived his life. And he was zealous for it. Judaism said... If you are a Jew, these are the boundaries. You must live within these boundaries. We are Jews, they are not. 
we are separate from others. It separated themselves, or they separated themselves from the culture, which at that point was a Hellenistic culture. And Paul was extremely zealous for this way of life. We could even add the word scrupulous about this. More than even his contemporaries. With this in mind, if he is scrupulous about his way of life, if he is zealous, how do you think he would respond when he hears somebody saying, the Jewish Messiah has come? Oh, and he was put to death by the Romans on a cross. Well, this would be offensive. And so Paul, in his indignation, persecutes the church for preaching what he believes to be a false message. It contradicted his vision of the world, his vision of a Jewish world. Certainly the idea of a Messiah on a Roman cross contradicted most expectations of the coming Messiah, someone who would sit on David's throne. So Paul persecuted the church. Paul tried to destroy the church. But this is the first snapshot. The second is his conversion. I've already mentioned the shift in focus from himself to what God has done. God set me apart from birth. God called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. In looking at Paul's account of his conversion here, we see at least four dimensions or four aspects of God's work in conversion. First of all, God's choice precedes conversion. Like the Old Testament prophets, Paul saw himself as set apart even before he was born. We saw this when we studied Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And even though Paul recognized that his pre-conversion snapshot is not a pretty one, it's all about him trying to destroy the people of God, Paul still believed that even before he was born, God had set him apart for this work. We may not be able to get our minds around it, this apparent contradiction. But I would suggest that we join with Paul and acknowledge God's choice in our salvation. Even before we were born, God chose us. Secondly, God's choice led to God's call. Before Paul was born, God chose him. While Paul was persecuting the church, God called him. It's really quite remarkable. We would think, maybe we should let Paul cool off a bit. At that point, he went by Saul. Uh, Lord, don't call him yet. He's still too energized. He's still too enthusiastic about persecuting the church. No, it's in the midst of what he is doing to, to destroy the church that God called him. And what does Paul say? He called me by his grace. What else could it be but a gracious call from God? Lovingly, mercifully, graciously, God called this man who was trying to kill Christians. It's the only explanation for how Paul could become a Christian. Because God chose God called him in the midst of this persecution. The third part is that God's call led to revelation. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Some translations have here to reveal his son to me. I actually don't see any conflict. On the road to Damascus, Jesus confronted Paul, and when asked by Paul, Who are you, Lord? Jesus answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And there began the revelation to Paul of who Jesus Christ was. 
it also began the revelation of Jesus Christ through Paul, that Paul would be an apostle to the Gentiles. And as the Spirit produces fruit in Paul's life, the fruit of the Spirit we will see in chapter 5, so he learns of Christ and he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The fourth part here in his conversion is that revelation leads to his commission so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. We should not imagine for a moment that God did not have a purpose in all of this. We shouldn't imagine that God chose him, called him, and then revealed Jesus to him and through him, and then that was it. There was, in fact, a purpose that Paul could proclaim the good news to the Gentiles. In conversion, I I think we could argue it was an internal, inward, even personal experience. If you read the three accounts, and by the way, I've told you this before, whenever something is repeated in the Bible, you need to pay attention. The conversion of Paul is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. If you read it, you will find that Jesus spoke to Paul, but the others around could not, they did not hear the voice. Only Paul did. Jesus was speaking to Paul. And at that moment, Paul was converted, not his companions. It was, in fact, a personal inward experience. But it is not meant to be kept internally. It isn't meant to be kept private. There comes a time when this experience we've had should change our lives. And it should be something we share with others. I want to be careful here. I want to be very careful. Oftentimes, we limit what we say about living the gospel or sharing the gospel. I am trying to be careful here. Oftentimes, we think when someone gets saved, they need to go out and witness and share. And that that is what Paul does here. That he's called, Jesus is revealed to him, and then he's commissioned to go out and tell other people about it. I think there's much more involved than that. I think when we become children of God, we should ask ourselves, how am I supposed to live my life now, now that I am a child of God? If you were a teacher before you became a Christian and you become a Christian, how are you supposed to be a teacher now as a child of God? If you were a student when you became a Christian, how are you to be a student now that you are a child of God? We are to ask ourselves, What does this mean for my life? It isn't simply that my ticket's been punched and I'm going to heaven and I'm out of hell. It should, in fact, change my life. I find it interesting that if we take the view that we are supposed to begin sharing the gospel right away, and I'm not necessarily opposed to that, we see that in Paul's case, he was commissioned, but the work did not begin right away. This is the third snapshot in verse, in verse number 17. Actually, begins in verse number 16. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Again, the NIV misses something crucial here. We find it in the King James. Paul says, I did not consult with flesh and blood. NIV says, with any man. But flesh and blood is what is written in the Greek. And this 
this should trigger something in our thinking. If you know the Gospels at all, well, let me read to you a passage from Matthew 16 from the ESV, English Standard Version. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is what Paul is saying. I did not get my message from flesh and blood. In the same way that Peter came to see that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's because God had revealed it to him. In the same way, this is how Paul knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't consult anyone after this experience. God spoke to him. After this, Paul lists his itinerary. He did not go up to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia and he returned to Damascus. As we will see, the Lord willing, next Sunday, uh, after three years, Paul went to Jerusalem. What he did for three years, we are not told. In fact, Paul does not tell us. In fact, Paul is vague about the whole business. We're in Arabia. I mean, technically, in that time, Arabia stretched from Damascus all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. That's a lot of territory. So why doesn't Paul tell us where he was? I think a specific location would have been helpful for the reader. And what was he doing for these three years in Arabia? We're not told that either. There are those who suggest that it is during this time that Paul was taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's entirely possible. We are not told this. Paul does not tell us. What Paul does tell us, and he goes to great pains for us to understand, is that he did not get his message from flesh and blood, but from God himself. I think this is what we should see from this passage and be careful about going beyond it. But I am struck by something very powerfully. That this man whom God chose before he was born, whom God called out of the midst of destructive activity, who God commissioned, and to whom God revealed his son, is not put into commission right away. In fact, these three years, and there's even more, we'll see there are 14 years between his first visit and his next visit to Jerusalem, we might even call them the hidden years. What is Paul doing doing during this time. We don't know. One is reminded of Moses, who when he left Egypt, he ran away because he had killed a man, spent 40 years in the Sinai Peninsula. And there he was prepared before he was to lead God's people out of Egypt. In a culture that worships celebrity, we must take care. We must learn from what we see here in Paul's life. I'm thinking if there's anybody I want to put on the front page of the paper, if there's anyone I want to put on a Christian television program, it's Paul. And Paul's very clear. He's chosen, he's called, he's commissioned. God has revealed Jesus to him and through him. Let's get this guy on TV. Let's get him up in the pulpit. And instead, for three years, nothing. We hear nothing. 
this seems like a very inefficient management of time. I mean, Paul knows the Old Testament backward and forward. He's very zealous. He's been converted. Let's get this guy and get him to preach. And in fact, oftentimes that is the approach that many take today. If a celebrity becomes a Christian, let's get him on TV. Paul was a celebrity. He knew the law. He has an extraordinary encounter with Jesus Christ. And what does God do? Puts them in Arabia for three years. That even tell us what they're doing. And in fact, if you look at the book of Acts, we are told that Barnabas had to go up to Tarsus to get Paul. Paul had gone back home. Like, Paul, what are you doing? You've got this great commission. God's called you. He's chosen you. Do it. When it's the right time, it's the right time. Paul's point here, however, is that his message did not come from flesh and blood. I personally believe that Jesus did mentor Paul the backside of the desert of Arabia for three years. But I'm not told that. What I do find is that this extraordinary man is hidden away for a period of time before God puts him into service. There may be times when we are to be quiet, when we are to be on the dark side of the moon, if you wish, the back side of the desert. When it is God's time, I think by his grace, he will show us. By the way, when Paul wrote to Timothy about leadership in the congregation, he told Timothy that a man who's going to be an elder, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. What was needed for Paul was a time of preparation before he was able to do the work for which he was chosen, called, and commissioned. Before we leave, just consider what we've looked at today. How quickly the Galatians deserted the gospel. I think we are not much different than them. And how they went for another gospel, in quotation marks, it's not really a gospel, it's not a gospel at all. It leaves a view of life that is God-centered to one that is self-centered. And trust me, we don't need 40 years to make that shift. We don't need 40 days, we don't need 40 minutes, not even 40 seconds. I think by nature we want to focus on ourselves. We want to call the shots. And it happens so quickly. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is God's grace. God's choosing, God's calling, God's revealing, and God's commissioning. I would argue that all four things, if you are a child of God, God has done for you. He has chosen you, he has called you, he has revealed Jesus Christ to you. And particularly those of us who grew up in Christian homes, where we knew all of this stuff before, but there came that day in which suddenly... Yes, we got it. We understood for the first time. And then we were commissioned, not to be pastors necessarily, but to live our lives where God had put us. And to ask ourselves, okay, I'm a Christian in this position. How am I supposed to live my life? How would Jesus live his life doing what I do? A student, 
a teacher, office worker, whatever it is you do. That's why God has called us. And we need to think that through and put it into practice. I think above all, we need to remember that if we know the gospel, if we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's not because some human being convinced us. It's because it was revealed to us by the Spirit of God. Now, I must say that for some people, it was simply somebody persuaded them, and then somebody else came along and persuaded them of something different. But if you are truly a child of God, remember, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. God did. That Jesus is the Christ, and this is the good news. And he is doing the work of restoring all things to himself. Let's pray together. Father, truly, how quickly we turn away from you. Even as we are here gathered to worship you, in our thinking, we may have turned away. We cry out to you and ask for your help, that your spirit who lives within us would guide and direct us, would help us to be conformed to the image of your son that our thinking would be transformed and rather than being self-centered, would be focused on you, the creator and sustainer of all things. We thank you for the gospel of your son. That in our lives, there was that time in which we came to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. May we see that the key, the secret is not simply not doing something, but to put something in its place. And rather than focusing on ourselves, may we recall that you are the one who chose us, who called us, who revealed the truth to us. And you have something you want us to do with our lives. Our thoughts should be on you and not ourselves. We pray for the McCurleys as they prepare to leave. We ask that your grace, your protection would go with them. Guide them. Help them as they move. Direct them to a good church. Guide them in all that they do. We thank you for the years that they were with us. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.